grace, mercy, and peace be multiplied abundantly unto you all through our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Normally, the church gets together on this evening, and it's all about the cup of salvation that we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. That we are not going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about another cup, the cup of God's wrath that we heard mentioned in the past in history as Jesus prays to his Father. You see, the first man brought sin into the world. Jesus Christ, the God-man, atoned for the sin of the world. The first man turned from God the Father in a garden. Jesus Christ, the God-man, turned to the Father in a garden. The first man brought us thorns. The God-man, Jesus, wore a crown of thorns for us. The first man was naked and unashamed. Jesus Christ was stripped naked and bore our shame. And the first man sinned at a tree. And the God-man, Jesus, bore our sins on a tree. All of human history and all of the scripture has been culminating to the place where Jesus is going to shed his blood. And we find ourselves in this place today. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus sweats blood in the Garden of Gethsemane at the foot of the Mount of Olives. This is where his bloodshed begins for us. The scene has gotten eerily dark as we are within hours of his execution, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Verse 39 to 41, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw away from them, knelt and prayed. And at this point, Jesus has been betrayed by Judas Iscariot, who has gone to get the soldiers to arrest Jesus. And Jesus knows that his death is imminent, that Judas will be returning, that he will be arrested, flogged, and beaten, and crucified. He knows this is going to happen. And so what Jesus doesn't do when he is under duress and in stress, he doesn't get angry with God. He doesn't run from God. He doesn't argue with God. And there's a lesson in that for all of us who in the days and weeks past and in the days and weeks that are ahead of us, we find ourselves stressed and in duress and anxious about the future. And how will we respond? What Jesus does is he prays. And a quick lesson on prayer. He prays in his darkest hour, his most difficult day, he prays. And there's a lesson in that for us. Prayer is communication with God, right? God speaks to us through the scriptures and we speak to God in prayer. That's how the relationship with the living God of the Bible goes. He is alive. He's a person and we can talk to him. 
He can hear and he can speak and he speaks through his word and he hears us when we pray. When we pray to God, we're not just delivering information, but we're building the relationship because when we pray, we're not telling God anything he doesn't already know. God, I'm having a very hard day. Really? I had no idea. God never is surprised at what we tell him because he knows exactly what is happening all the time. Instead, prayer is building relationship with God, and there's a lesson in that for us. We also read that there is a place of prayer. It says he goes to this garden. The other Gospels say the same thing about this event, and they call it the Garden of Gethsemane, which means olive press. And Luke says, as usual, as was his custom, meaning Jesus went often here to prayer, pray. So here's my question for you. Do you have a place to pray? A place that's not distracting, not filled with hurry or worry or busy or filled with the gods of this world. Jesus went to this place frequently. And it's important for you to have that kind of place in your home or very near your home. This is one of Jesus' places of prayer. Jesus is well aware of what is going to happen to him. So he maintains this spiritual discipline as a way of preparing for the troubles that is ahead. And there's a lesson in that for us. Notice Jesus also has partners in prayer. He tells his disciples, please pray for me. Jesus doesn't do this a lot, so when he does, it's kind of important. The question for you, who are you praying for? Jesus' partners in prayer failed him. He tells them to pray and they fall asleep. They're not there when he needs them. Here's a sobering question for us. People that you said you would pray for, are you praying for them? Or has it just become a cliche? Or you pray for them, but then you don't follow up with them. How many of you tell people you'll pray, but you don't? You don't write it down, you don't put it in your phone, and as a result, you and I are a lot like the disciples. Notice, there's a posture to prayer. He had a place, he had partners, and he also has a posture. Luke records that he knelt. And in that day, God's people typically stood to pray. And this is still our general tradition. But in this occasion, Jesus kneels in prayer. And that's significant because, again, when we pray, it reveals something about us and who we are. If you were to see someone kneeling, that tells you maybe they're a soldier who has surrendered to a greater authority. Or maybe they're 
someone who is guilty of a crime, who has acknowledged that and is now before the legal authorities, submitting themselves to whatever they deserve. Or they're a Christian who belongs to God and knows that they are surrendering and that they are guilty. And that's what they're demonstrating in their bodily posture. There's humility. There's submission. There's surrender in the posture of Jesus, which tells us a lot about him and how he views God the Father and how he comes to God the Father in prayer. When was the last time you knelt in prayer? It's interesting. Sometimes as kids, we do that. And then we become adults. And we don't. It's good to have our bodies prepare our souls for conversation with God that is yielding and humble. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to have with his father. He's going to pray to his father, and we're going to read it for ourselves as we eavesdrop on this conversation. So I guess not all the disciples were quite asleep. Of course, recorded for us. Verse 42. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to his disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The Father. Sometimes it's wrongly stated as if God the Father was the mean one and Jesus was the nice one and God the Father was so angry with Jesus so he punished his son. But the truth is that in the eternity of time, God the Father and God the Son agreed that the plan for forgiving humanity would be the death of the second member of the Trinity. This is where Jesus says elsewhere, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And what he's saying is, I'm not just a victim. I agree to the plan. In Mark 14, verse 33, it says, Jesus was deeply distressed. Hebrews 5, 7 talks about the prayer life of Jesus while he was on earth. It says he prayed with loud cries and tears. And we read in Luke that he's full of anguish and agony. The father doesn't tell the son, you just need to toughen up and get through it. That's not what he says. The father doesn't tell the son, hey, you know how it's going to end. It's going to be fine. Just keep the group perspective. The father doesn't look at the son and say, hey, remember Nehemiah 8.10? The joy of the Lord is your strength. Be happy. Have a good attitude, positive self-thinking. No. The father and the son 
sit together in a sacred manner. And Jesus says, this is crazy. What I am about to experience has me in great distress and agony. And we can learn a lesson from this. When you are suffering, Jesus gives you permission to be brutally honest. Here's the question. Why is Jesus Christ so grieved in the garden? Why is he in such distress? Why can he not sleep? Most of us get distressed and can't sleep at night when we don't know what's going to happen next. And let me tell you, even if you knew, it wouldn't make it any easier. Does Jesus know what's going to happen next? Absolutely. Does it seem easier? No. Why is Jesus so grieved in the garden? Father, if you are willing, verse 42, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. His agony is all in relationship to the cup. And here's the mental image I want to paint for you. God the Father and God the Son, the first and second member of the Trinity, imagine them sitting down together and there's a cup that sort of perched on a table. And they're both looking at that cup. And the Son of God says, Father, I know from eternity past we have agreed that I will drink that cup. Now that we're here, I'm asking you, is there any other way? And God the Father, you could just see it in, in him. He's devastated, saying, you know there's not. Were there, we would consider that. And he pushes the cup over to the son. I need you to drink that cup. And the son, looking at the cup, Father, I'm willing, but I'm struggling. So what is the cup? Why is there so much distress and anguish and agony? Why can Jesus not sleep and he's sweating drops of blood? I'll tell you why. That cup is filled with the wrath of God. Three places in the Old Testament, there are more, that connect the cup with the wrath of God. Ezekiel 23.33 speaks of a cup of horror and desolation. Isaiah 51.17 speaks of the cup of his wrath. And Jeremiah 25, 15 speaks of the cup of the wine of wrath. I want you to use this picture that the Bible gives. You are a sinner. You are a sinner by nature, choice, word, thought, action. Commission, you do wrong. Omission, you do not do what is right. Plus, you're filled with haughtiness and pride and self-righteousness. And you've been puffed up by a culture of self-esteem and meism. And the hard, cold truth is you will not die and stand before a mirror and give an account for your life. You will stand before your creator, God Almighty, and give an account of your life. And every day that you and I sin, it's like a drop into a cup 
and it is being collected. And we pour the sin in, and then proportionately with the sin that we pour in, God at the end of this life pours out proportionately his wrath. And so the cup is the cup of the wrath of God against all humanity. And Jesus is looking at this cup, and this cup is filled with everyone's sins in the history of the world. And it is poison. And with tears in his eyes, he looks at the Father and he's saying, is there any option but for me to drink every drop in this cup? And with tears in his eye, the Father says, Son, we both know if there is to be salvation for anyone, you must drink that cup every single drop. My job is to tell you the truth. Your job is to believe it. The Bible speaks of God not just hating sin, but hating sinners because sin is in our very nature. Sin is not just the mistakes that we make. It's not just that we're good people down in our hearts who have had bad moments. In our worst moments is the truest revelation of who we really are at the deepest level. You will struggle with this, but this is the beginning of freedom. For if you don't diagnose the problem, how in the world can we present the solution? You and I are the problem, not the solution. You and I are sinners through and through, and we are by nature objects of wrath. And that's a quote from the Bible. And the wrath of God is being stored up for all of us, that we're all filling sin after sin, folly after folly after folly, rebellion after rebellion, arrogance after arrogance after arrogance, drop after drop after drop, and we're filling that cup. And God lets us fill that cup, and all of our sin goes in, and in the end, God pours out his wrath, and his wrath is proportionate with our sins, unless, Someone else drinks that cup. And Jesus drank the cup of the wrath of God. And this is why he was sleepless. This is why he's sweating, sweating blood. To exchange places with us. See, at the cross of Jesus, there is hatred for Jesus and love for us. So that when we die, there would not be hatred for us, but just love. That Jesus is God among us and that Jesus became one of us and that Jesus lived the life that we could never live. That Jesus died the death that we should die. And that on the cross, the wrath of God was poured out on the Son of God. To say it another way, Jesus took the cup on the cross and drank every single drop of the wrath of God and he endured it. This was physical, emotional, spiritual, mental suffering to a degree that is incomprehensible. When God made him who knew no sin to be the sin of the world so that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. Jesus died that death 
that you and I deserved. And the Bible uses one word to explain this all, and it's a big word, propitiation. But it's an important word. And it appears four times in the New Testament. And what it means is this, that the wrath of God is upon us and Jesus steps in our place and he takes the cup from our hand and he drinks its full strength and he suffers and bleeds and dies that we might live in love and joy, thereby propitiating, diverting, removing, enduring the wrath of God on our behalf. Romans 3, 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Hebrews 2.17 Therefore he, meaning Jesus, had to be made like his brothers, human like us, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And 1 John 2, verse 2, he, meaning Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So it doesn't matter, male, female, young, old, black, white, rich, poor, brilliant, simple. Jesus alone propitiates the wrath. No other religion can. No philosophy will. And psychology may make you feel better for a while, but it will not be able to save you from the torment that is to come. Only Jesus now, some say, but I thought God was God of love. Where is the love in all that? It doesn't sound very loving. 1 John 4, verse 10. This is love. Not how you define it, but how God, who is love, defines it. This is love. Not that we love God. That's the problem. But that he loved for our sins. So the cross of Jesus is where the wrath was poured out on him and the love was poured out on us. So, tomorrow, you get to look long and hard at that cross of Jesus and you'll see God is holy and God is just does forgive. There is propitiation for sin, but it is in Christ alone. And if I'm not in Christ, then I am simply filling a cup of the wrath of God that I will have to drink forever at the end of my days on this earth. So let me close with this. There are only two kinds of people, those who believe it and those who do not. History is not divided into various religions or races or 
ethnicities or tribes or tongues or moralities or incomes or intelligences. Two kinds of people. Those who believe and those who don't. Those who believe the wrath of God is lifted and those who do not believe the wrath of God is coming. The Bible puts it in John 3, 36 like this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever, 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 anybody, everybody, welcome to Jesus. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how you are feeling right now. Whoever, whoever, their salvation through Jesus Christ, whoever believes in him has eternal life and the wrath of God is lifted and the love of God is given forever. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this plan of salvation in a world where we are told we're good people with good hearts and what we need is more self-esteem, we receive the hard word that we are bad people with bad hearts who need a new heart, that we are the problem, not the solution, that we are the sinner, not the savior, that we are the object of wrath, not the propitiation of wrath. Oh, dear Jesus, you are amazing that you would endure all of that for us. Lord Jesus, it's overwhelming when you think of what you did for us, that the creator of the universe would suffer and die for his people to make them his friends. That is love. Apply, dear God, we pray this message to all of our hearts.